Um, I'm so excited to invite Leland, who is one of our teaching team members here at Mill City, to bring the sermon today. Um, I like to call him Pastor Leland or Dr. Leland, and I think he just wants to be called Leland, but every once in a while he's like, call me Dr. Le- Dr. Eliason. Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I changed my mind. I like Leland better. You like Leland better. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay, today it's Leland. Um, Leland is one of the, the few people that has been a member both at Elam Church and at Mill City Church and a leader at both churches. Leland helped us start Mill City Church. He's been a mentor of mine since then and so deeply value him in my life and in our life as a church at Mill City. And so as we continue on our conversation, New Beginnings in the Book of Acts, uh, would you welcome Leland as he takes us into the next chapter today? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, Stephanie has become a dear friend. And uh, we are so blessed to have her as our pastor here. And, and the vision that she has for what God is doing in our church and in this community is so inspiring and such a blessing. So thank you, Pastor Steph. She deserves a round of applause right now. When I was driving over this morning, I had a picture in my mind of a 1955 light green 55 Ford stick shift six cylinders because in my junior year of college I spent some Saturday mornings over here with the driver and owner of that car, A.J. Wingblade. And just about everything I talk about this morning he embodied as few people I know did. And Carol and I look back at our time at Elam with such fond memories. She taught in the nursery school there and so it's just great having all you here today, and I'm greatly indebted to that church for my own spiritual journey and well-being. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we've been singing praises to you with thanksgiving in our hearts because you are such a great and good God. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would take what's been prepared this morning from your word in the early church and use it to guide us and inspire us and direct us and to change us. Whatever needs to be done, Lord, please do a work in our lives right now, I pray. Amen. Well, before we look at the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in detail, let's do the context that we find in Acts chapter 8. The early church, from a human point of view, was at a, a critical point. The focus was moving from Mother Church in Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and that turning point comes with this story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But what the church was going through at the time was horrendous. From a human point of view, I think you and I would say that that church should have failed and died and been snuffed out. Because one of the leaders of the church, Stephen, was preaching, and without any hesitation, he called out the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish leaders of their faith, and said to them in no uncertain terms, you are guilty of crucifying God's Son, and you are a hard-hearted people. I mean, it wasn't exactly comfort words. And they were furious, and had him stoned until he died. And while they were grieving, a man by the name of Saul, who was a brilliant strategist, later became the Apostle Paul, he 
agreed that the death of Stephen was a good thing. And he began his campaign to uh, snuff out the church. Well, any organization that's just a human group of people who were doing their own thing, to have their leaders stuffed out and persecution take place, that persecution resulted in the, the early church members being scattered all over Judea and Samaria, with the exception of the 12 apostles. They were, they were still in Jerusalem. Normally, that would be enough to wipe out a movement. But instead, it says that those who were scattered in Judea and Samaria shared their faith, communicated about Christ without fear, and so the church grew and spread in all those places. How do you explain a group of Christians coming to believe in Christ and then flourish at a time when they should be dying? Well, part of the secret of that is found in the words of Stephen just before he died. He said, I saw heaven open and the Son of Man, that is Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Earlier Acts tells us that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he was seated at the right hand of God. The early church were convinced that Jesus has been raised from the dead. There was an empty tomb. There was no body to be found. He appeared to hundreds of people in the 40 days after his death on the cross and then his resurrection. And now he was standing instead of being seated because that's what Christ does to welcome those who have died in his name into his heaven. And what they found was, it was really hard to threaten and intimidate these people. I mean, what do you do with people who, if you say, I'm going to kill you, and they say, good, I'll go to see Jesus in heaven. And they said, well, then we'll let you live. They said, good, I'll serve him until I die. That's what was going on. And I think the story of the thriving of the early church in that context is one of the greatest evidences for the true resurrection of Jesus Christ in bodily form that the New Testament teaches us. Well, it says in the midst of that persecution time, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And where did he go? Well, it says he went down to Judea and Samaria. And look where Jerusalem is. And look where Samaria is. Notice that when Luke says Philip went to Samaria, went down to Samaria, it's because from their perspective, any place on the map away from Jerusalem was down. That's how important Jerusalem was to that group of people at that time. And now we read from the text where it, where it tells us from Acts 8:26 what exactly happened. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he started out. And on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah. 
the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now we need to take a look at that, those instructions and just think about what they mean. Because the first part of it, where the messenger of God says, go south to a desert road. It was not a pretty place. It was not go south to Florida to witness. It was more like go to a road that, that's near Death Valley. Uh, but Philip went. And then the spirit got more specific. Go to that chariot and stay near it. So it's just that Philip ran to catch it. I love the picture of, of a, a witness for Christ, a preacher for Christ, running to catch up with the chariot to obey the Holy Spirit. And he walked along it, and he heard what was going on. And the application of those two commands to Philip for us today goes like this. Expect the Holy Spirit to direct you and me to go and be near people who need to know God. That's where a great adventure begins because we never know who we're going to be in touch with and what's going to happen. And so if we're going to be, if we're going to partner with God in what he's doing in the expansion of his church and the extension of his kingdom and his rule, we need to go near and be near people who don't know the Lord. That may sound pretty simple, but actually it's pretty complex for Christians to do that. Carol and I spent almost a dozen years as pastor and wife at what was then called the Whittier Area Baptist Fellowship, located in Whittier, California. And when we were called to come, it was with a very specific goal in mind. The congregation had voted unanimously to invite a pastor to come who would help them grow the church, not by transfer of members, which they had been doing for a decade, and it would have been thriving. There was about 1,500 people there when we got there. That was on a Sunday morning. If you count the folks who were off vacationing someplace in Southern California, there was probably 2,500 people who were regulars at the church. But they, they hadn't seen adult conversions hardly at all. They saw children come to faith in Christ and young people came to faith in Christ and they said it's time for us to reach the lost people. The 300,000 who live in a radius around the church, most of whom don't go to church and they're unchurched. So the condition of their souls nobody knew for sure, but that was what needed to be done in terms of what that church was about. And we tried all kinds of things. I can tell you more ways that don't work to do evangelism than do work. But we finally had a, a consultant, a church growth consultant, do a full analysis of the church. And he, it was like he put a mirror up in front of us. And it said, you spend 97% of your time on Christians and 3% on outreach. Is there, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's wrong. And in addition to that, we had a, a study that had just come out that said, New Christians who are with all kinds of non-Christian folks come to faith in Christ and with 18 months they are fellowshipping entirely with Christians and, and leave their non-Christian friends and, and don't associate with them. So we had a church that was relatively isolated from the people that we were saying we wanted to reach. 
So what happened was we felt, and there's no verse in the Bible that says to do this, but we said we'll, we'll make 20% of our programs target and focus on reaching lost people. And we had no idea in advance the difference that would make. Because what happened was that the same people who had been planning programs for Christians were now planning 100% of their time focusing on 20%. I mean, it, it wasn't 100% of all of their time, but, but all of the people who were planning the 20% were, were people who had never done this before. And what happened was that the core of the church changed in its attitude towards outreach. There's something about that change that's just huge. And the application here would be, we can't expect outreach to be done by half a dozen or a dozen people if it isn't happening among the rest of us in the main body. And, and just to illustrate this, the church in Jerusalem, we have a description of them in Acts 2, and it says they were focused heavily on doing five things. They were, uh, well, let's see if I can just remember them because I can't seem to see it in my notes. They were, gave themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to the Lord's table, to uh, worship. And there's one more that generosity is that, yeah, she preached on it just a little while ago. It's a great message. I didn't mean to leave that out. That was, that was. <laughs> I just lost some of my status in her mind. So, uh, and then it says, and daily, the Lord was adding to the church those who were believing. What does that mean? It means that when Philip was out doing one-on-one -on -one evangelism, the church at home was growing in the same way, seeing lost people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that's just really critical. Well, if I go back to the Whittier situation, we, we were on this big emphasis and, and new beginning for our church to have 20% of our programs reaching lost people. And I'm thinking, so what are you going to do about your schedule? Because as a pastor, I was spending almost all of my time with Christians. And so I started praying for opportunities. I saw a boat about five houses down the hill from where we lived. And I love boats. And so I walked by and thought, I wonder who owns it. And he was washing it, cleaning it, which boat owners do, especially if it's a new one. They make it look just as good as it can look. And I talked to him about his boat, and he got interested and said, would you like to go fishing with me on the Pacific? I said, I would love to do that. And then I thought, so if I share Christ with him when we're out on the Pacific, where would he go if he doesn't want to hear it? <clears throat> well, we went fishing, had a great time. I did share Christ. I discovered that his wife was a believer. She had a group of women who gathered weekly to pray for her husband and there I was as a part of a whole network of people who were already seeking to share their faith with this man. Amen. Well they moved so I don't know what the end of the story is, was with him or is with him, but there's a clarification we can make at this point because there's a lot of Christians who feel like failures if the person they're sharing their faith with doesn't receive Christ at the end of the first conversation. And, and that's just a total misunderstanding of what 
reaching out to people who don't know Christ is all about. And, and the proof of that is that the Apostle Paul uses a picture of what farmers do to define the process of successful evangelism. Listen to it, 1 Corinthians 3, 1. I think it's on the screen. I planted, said Paul, Apollos watered it, but God has, making, God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be recorded according to their own labor. So don't get discouraged if the first time you share your faith, it doesn't seem like anything has happened. It might take many more than you to bring that person into a relationship with Christ. It might take a whole church. A church that's focused on lifting up Christ so that people will understand who he is and respond to him. Well now, so another line about that, the timing is up to God. I can't tell you how hard that is for me to learn. Because I want somebody to receive, receive Christ right away. Uh, there was a man in the church at Whittier who I met the first year we were there. I prayed him, prayed for him for n the nine years before, he, well, it was more than that. It was, it, it was another 11 years that I prayed for him every month, sometimes many times a week, presented Christ on four or five specific occasions, and he would not. No matter what he told me about the conditions he needed, they were created, and he still wouldn't believe in Jesus. And we left, and one of the tears that I shed when we drove out of the parking lot of the church when we left to go to Bethel was, would this man ever come to faith in Christ? You know, the result of that was, in his life, a year and a half later, he attended a class in the church called Contagious Christians. I mean, he was in the wrong class. <laughs> and at the end of the class, instead of leaving, he sat, on the, he sat on his chair and he started to cry. And he had one of the sweetest men in the church sitting next to him, just a tender spirit. On one side, on the other side was an ex-Marine who was one of the toughest men in the church. And he asked him, what are, you, what are you crying about? He said, I think I need to pray to receive Christ. And the Marine says, well, you sure do, because if you don't, you're going straight to hell. <laughs> the other man said, could we help you? And they prayed with him. And he let me know that he was a believer. It was just amazing story. But see, this, this business of leaving the timing up to God taxes our, it taxes our patience, sure taxes mine. It says, Philip provides this, well, I'm saying Philip gives us a second step. Listen to and learn to understand the person you're talking to. And Philip learned all this about the man in the chariot. He was an Ethiopian. Now, the Ethiopia of his day is not where it is now. It was in the land of Nubia, which is south of Egypt. This was an African man who held a very high office. It says, get this, he was in charge of all the treasury of Kandike, the royal family. And he obviously had a really generous travel allowance because nobody in that day had a chariot taking them down a desert road unless they were really well off, and he was. And he was a eunuch. 
Deuteronomy 23.1 says that they were not allowed to meet in the assembly of the temple. They were a marginalized subgroup, and very few of them attained the stature of this man. Most were slaves in one form or another. Isaiah 56 seems to go beyond Deuteronomy 23 when this is what Isaiah 56 says. Let's see if we've got it on the screen. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. Now listen to what happens. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And it seems like this eunuch lived in light of the passage of the prophecy of Isaiah 56, not Deuter uh, Deuteronomy 23. So he was a seeker after God, had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and Philip realized that this eunuch did not understand the notion of a suffering Messiah. And he ended up communicating the good news of Jesus. So here's the third application. Use the good news about Jesus to clarify misconceptions about God. Let's see if we have the passage on the screen that we need to look at. So Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. This is from Isaiah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. So Philip had that passage before him. And Philip began with that very passage and told him the good news about Jesus. The Ethiopian was confused and stumped with the concept of a suffering Messiah. Jewish people longed for a triumphant Messiah who would be their deliverer. And Philip explained to him, listen, that passage is a prophecy about Jesus. And explained to him that when Jesus was forced to go to trial and led to the cross, he did not open his mouth and that the court that sentenced him to death deprived him of justice. This is about a suffering Messiah, and the Ethiopian needed to have someone help him with his misconception about the Messiah. The next time you talk to a trans person, remember this story. Remember the respect and dignity with which Philip told him about the Messiah. It's, it's such an important thing in our day, isn't it? So let's keep it in mind. Misconceptions about God are everywhere. A year ago, we had a contractor work for us for a few weeks uh, renovating a bathroom. 
and it was a lot of work and we spent a lot of time together and I got to know him. He was a single father with two high school students and he got to know who we were and loved Carol's cookies and ate a lot of them as I recall. Uh, and one day he volunteered, I have a problem with God. And I said, and what is your problem? And he said, well, and he explained to me out of his background and history what he thought God was, who he thought God was. And I thought to myself, if I believed that that was God, I would have a problem too. So I said, listen, I've got a book in my library about misconceptions about God. Are you a reader? Yes, I am. Would you like the book? Yes, I would. So I gave it to him. Christmas came around. He was leaving, and he said, I'd like you to pray for my high school children over Christmas. I said, could we pray right now? Yeah, he said, we could. So I led a prayer, and while I was praying, I asked the Holy Spirit to give me the words and to pray for the things that he would most want to hear me pray for about his children that he loved dearly. <clears throat> I don't know what's happened since that time. I'm waiting for him to call someday and say, hey, I, I, I think I got it about this misconception I had about God, but I haven't heard that yet. The Ethiopian understood that Jesus was the suffering Messiah, and Philip must have rode with him for quite a ways further because he explained to him about baptism, and they came by a pond, and, and, and the Ethiopian said, there's water, can't I be baptized now? And Philip said, yes. And he ordered the driver to stop the chariot, and they got down into the water, came up out of the water, and the end of the story about the eunuch says that he went on his way rejoicing. So, if we can learn from this passage in the New Testament, here's, here are the takeaways. Expect the Holy Spirit to direct you and me to go and be near people who, near, who need to know God. Listen to and learn to understand the person you're talking to. And use the good news about Jesus to clarify misconceptions about God. And I want to say it's the biggest adventure of my life to share Christ with people who don't know him. Because you never know what's going to happen as a result. And, and, and it's, it's just an amazing... I've had to overcome all kind of fears and shame that I wasn't doing better and failure. I mean, it's a complicated thing in a, in a sense to, to get out there on the edges and, and try to share faith. But it's also a wonderful, a wonderful experience. So before the, the, the conversations had gone in any direction to indicate that we'd all be together as a single group. Uh, Stephanie and I had coffee together one day. It was, it was a lot of coffee an hour and a half later. We were done. But it, but it was a great conversation. And she asked me, what, it, what is your vision for the, the coming together of the two churches? And, and I said, it would be to see, please come up, Stephanie. Uh, it would be to see uh, a, a new outreach to the people of our community who don't know Christ. And, and it's kind of a repeat of what we learned to see at Whittier, adult conversions. And, and here she was with all kind of good ideas. And when I did this message, I called and said, I, I would like you to come and share with what God has put on your heart uh, 
in order that everybody can hear. So Stephanie, you're on. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for that invitation. Um, you know, Leland is, really has been a mentor of mine. And when I say that, I mean that I invite him to challenge me in my life. And that's why we had a, a good conversation about that and we have over the years. There's so many encounters I've had with people in my life over the last few years with your encouragement to take every opportunity to share that story. So thank you for that and for the opportunities I've had to do that. And I've just been praying for our church. I know a lot of those stories amongst you as well. And what I have noticed is that in this season, there is just this, this bubbling up of people saying, what would it look like to be creative with sharing Jesus in this time? And I'm noticing that among you, and it makes me wonder, what is the Spirit doing as we go into a new beginning, as there's a new opportunity for us? What might God be inviting us into? As individuals, wherever we go, just like we talked about, the running up against the chariots, what chariots might we be encouraged to, to run up alongside? But also as a church together, what might that look like? And I want to invite you into prayer with me about that in this next season. There's a few things we're for sure going to do. We've already had some people who have been looking into the alpha materials, which has been really effective in post-Christian places like Europe. And so that's a, a very much the neighborhood that we're in here right now. Uh, Serena, who's been here leading worship with us, we're going to partner with her to do creative evangelism training for anyone who's interested this spring. Um, but when I think about how in a couple months we're going to be moving down just down the street to a building that's been serving Jesus and sharing the name of Jesus for hundred and something years on that corner. But the front door is Logan Park, like the central park of Northeast Minneapolis. And I wonder not about how many people could come into that building, but what it would look like for us to go out into that front yard and to say, we want to encounter what God is already doing here. And how can we join in and tell the story? And Serena and I were talking about how it's in those places, in those places where people are curious and they're wondering about things. And Maybe some people don't want to hear it. That's okay. What about the people who are ready? The Holy Spirit has made them ready. It's not our decision. Here, and here. so we're going to say, what does that look like together as a community? And so would you pray about that and just wonder with us about what it means in this new beginning for our church to just be committed not to get more people to a worship service, to get more people in the family of God. It's not about that, a worship service and coming to hear from professional Christians. We are all people who are following Jesus with our life. What does it look like to live that out loud in appropriate ways, in culturally sensitive ways, to love people and to, to do justice, but to say, and amongst that, choosing Jesus as your leader and savior is just incredible, most incredible thing you could do. So just pray with us about that as we head into this new beginning. And uh, I asked Leland if he would just commission us and just bless us. So as the worship team comes, Lee, would you just do that and just pray over our community as you close? I'll do that. And I have to say, that I grew up thinking that prayers needed to be spontaneous, not written in order for God to hear them. I no longer believe that. I, I felt burdened to pray a prayer for us at this point that would uh, focus our attention and so hear this prayer on our behalf. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you today that the people who are here have rejected a version of Christianity that is boring, where everything is predictable and the goal is to be comfortable. Thank you, Lord, that you left heaven's glory and came to be one of us. You understand the emptiness that people have who have lost their way and are in desperate need of help, even if they won't admit it. Thank you that you are alive in our midst and that you keep doing your work that heals broken hearts and forgives sin and removes the weight of shame and you give us a new life with a new purpose. We believe that you are creating something new 
when you led these two congregations to become one. We know that new beginnings are needed in so many areas, but none is more important than learning the new ways that you will lead us to reach our community. We pray that you would give us new eyes to see our neighbors the way you see them. Give us courage to act in obedience to your directions. Give us strength because we are often so weak. Give us perseverance when we feel like quitting. There is so much we don't know, so be our teacher. And we are often confused about what specific next step to, t step to take, so be our guide. Help us to stay centered in the joy of the Lord, I pray. Thank you for the hope that we feel. We sense that we're going to experience the richness of a new beginning that you make possible. We are so glad to know you, Lord Jesus, and that you have given us each other. We commit ourselves to partner with you in the grand adventure that you have for each of us. In your name I pray. Amen.